Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Back Porch Stories with Chuck Stead. This is Back Porch Story, I believe, number four in season three. Looking forward to that. Chuck, uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, actually, Joe, uh, I realized I had skipped right over in, in the linear run. Uh, of my, I skipped over my introduction to formal education. So we're going to go back for a couple of stories to kindergarten. Great. Great. I've been wondering then how that happened. <laughs> now we're, now we're going to find out. We're going to know. Everybody, without any further ado, here is Chuck's Dead. The title of this one is First Day. One morning, while Walt pulled on his white baggy painter's pants, Tessie buttoned me up in a cross-checked cotton shirt. This is a shirt she had purchased with her own money, earned from working on the assembly lines at Letterly Laboratory. She buttoned it up right to my neck and hooked her index finger over the collar to check for proper fit. She tugged a bit. I fell toward her. Then I stood staring at her morning makeup, rouge, powder, lipstick, and eyebrow pencil. Beyond this was a firm, square-jawed, middle-aged woman, mother of three girls and one big-headed boy. I knew her as Mom, but heard her referred to as Tessie. She expected to be addressed as Mom or Mommy or Ma, and, well, the truth is, over the years, I pretty quickly assimilated to calling her Tessie. The same was true of Walt, perhaps even more so. I called him Walt. Most mornings, the girls put on their skirts. Walt pulled on his work trousers, and the house cleared out. Tessie went about herself, doing her things, getting things to write, as she used to call it. it. It used to be that I stayed with grandparents when Tessie had a job, until the rest of the family drifted back in again. Then they passed, and I took to staying with another family who lived over top of the Cramshaws. But this morning, there was something different going on. Something different. Tessie looked at me. She smiled. Her teeth were smeared with lipstick, blood red. She said, You'll do fine. You will. You'll do fine. You'll see. Then she got up and went about looking for her car keys. The girls were just leaving. Terry, the youngest of the three girls, the one who had her bangs cut perfectly straight over her eyebrows, stopped in front of me. She looked at me. She saw a fierce little grin at me. And then, as she followed the others out, she shouted back, It'll be great. It'll be great. You're going to be good. It'll be, yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. I didn't believe her. I climbed down off the ladder back chair and went to the front window. The girls were walking up over the hill. Something was going on. Walt walked into the room. This was the dining room. It was papered in a bamboo print. Sometimes, when I was confused, I would study the vertical lines of bamboo. I was doing this now. Walt said, You want me to take him? Tessie looked at him. He seldom offered to take the kids most anywhere. She hesitated. Walt, Walt out of the ordinary, was not the Walt that she knew. She looked at him. He said, What? What? She shook her head. This is what I do. I do this. This is not what you do. It's what I do. Well, good Lord, Mama. She stepped toward me, snatched my hand. Her grip was sudden and clammy. I looked at her and saw that, well, that she was afraid. She pulled me past Walt. I'm leaving now. This is what I do. So I'll take him. It was a short ride. 
We climbed into her 1958 Chevy wagon and drove up 1st Street, along Mountain Avenue, only as far as 4th Street. Here we disembarked and entered a small crowd of unknown children and mothers, all milling about. She walked me over to the corner and stopped me next to a single fire hydrant that stood shorter than the one that was across the street from our house. I focused on this short plug and wondered if it had any relation to the other taller one on 1st Street. Tessie spotted her sister-in-law, my Aunt Dot, who was wandering about with her own little boy by the hand. She joined us by the plug. And this boy, Tommy, or Tommy Tadpole as I came to think of him, stood there chattering away about something called a brontosaurus. I continued to study the short plug. What is going on here? Tessie asked Dot, as the number of children and mothers continued to increase. Dot, who on this comfortable day in early September, wore a fine pair of white cotton gloves. She looked good. I don't know, Tessie. Doesn't doesn't seem like anybody's in charge. I looked at my aunt. She moved her voice in a different way than my mother moved hers. Her words seemed sometimes quicker. I puckered my mouth to form a quick word, and then having no word in mind, I just remained there, puckered. Tadpole looked at me. He puckered his mouth. Dot glanced down at him and said, What's the matter with you? Stop doing that. A boy named Jojo a lanky, long-legged boy of maybe five years, I don't know, he ambled over to the plug. He and his mother had moved into the house on 2nd Street where Walt and Tessie and we all had lived previously. This Jojo was a curious and sometimes moody fellow. He stood aside from most others before joining in. Shortly after their move, I saw him. He was standing aside a game of giant step, baby step, and he was watching it, scrutinizing it. This was the way he behaved on 2nd Street for the better part of an hour until finally he decided it was okay to join. Jojo now sat on the dusty bank of the little yard in front of the school. He looked up. He said, This is the day, you know. This is it. This is the day. You know that, don't you? Tadpole darted his sudden dark eyes at him. The day what? What? What day is this, Jojo? This is our first day of school. Tadpole recoiled with hilarity. (laughs) Come on, we know that. What do you think? You think we don't know that? Do you think that? I didn't know it. I wasn't even sure what it meant. But I was beginning to get the idea that there was some very big change going on. Tessie opened her bag and withdrew a pack of Chesterfield Kings. With a gesture, she offered one to Dot, who accepted this despite this was not her brand. Next, Tessie took out a small silver lighter. And this lighter, which produced a satisfying click when it was opened, was something that she made a point of using, somewhat theatrically. She didn't care for using matches. They were common and ordinary, not sophisticated. She held her lighter, the little blue flame wavering gently, to Dot's cigarette. Once they were both smoking, they resumed their assessment of the day. I suppose I expected this. Hmm. I don't know why, but I suppose this is what you get for your taxes. Dot looked at her. There was a moment of genuine hesitation. A commentary on municipal taxes was not really what she expected. Tessie shook her head. I'll be late. I'll be late for work, you know. She looked down at Dot's shoes. Smooth, patent leather pumps, turquoise blue. May moons, she asked. Dot looked down quickly. Oh, no, no, no. Shoehorn, actually. Shoehorn. Really? Tessie studied the shoes. Dot shifted from one foot to the other to give her a better viewing. 
Well, I'm surprised, Dot. I'm surprised. Very smart, very nice for the shoehorn. I am surprised. I'd have thought that only May Moons would have carried something like that. Dot shook her head. Well, they hardly have any shoes, Tessie. Yeah, but uh, the shoehorn's stock is old. I mean, it's okay for me to bring Chucky there for Buster Brown's or Walt for loafers, but anything with style. It's where I get my naturalizers, Tessie. Well, yeah, but... And my Tweeties. Dot continued to talk, but I got caught up on the word Tweety. For me, this was a small yellow bird with an oversized head that was regularly harassed by a cat with speech impediment. I related to this big-headed bird. But for selection, Tessie raised her voice, I go to Ramsey Circle. Dot nodded in quick agreement. Yeah, yeah, for selection, Ramsey Circle has got it over suffering stores. We all know that. But for that matter, the new mall in Bergen, the what? The Bergen Mall, you know, down in Paramus, just past Route 4 on 17, going north. Or... Or they've got more stores there, you know. At least that's what I've heard. I won't go there. But it's a selection. That's what it is. And if that's what you want, you could spend a whole day, I'm told, because I've never been there. You could spend a day down there. Tessie nodded, slowly. I could tell she was not happy. I mean, my mom was born and raised in Norwood, over the state line from Rockland. New Jersey was supposed to be her turf. How was it that she learned this? This new shopping wonder, she learned about it from her country sister-in-law, who seldom ventured more than a mile from 2nd Street. She drew in on her Chesterfield. She fell silent. A thick-shouldered woman with a nest of wavy blonde hair stepped out of the front of the entrance of the Hilburn School and clapped her hands three times very quickly. Then she proceeded to instruct the crowd of mothers that their time here was no longer necessary. There was some nervous movement throughout the gathering, nervous movement, and suddenly the sound of a few sobs rang out from two or three little girls. Tessie lowered herself into a squat that projected her knees, almost touching my chin. She told me to be a good boy. She patted my head, and she stood quickly. I watched her tap out her cigarette on the crown of the fire hydrant and then turned to leave. I followed her. She stopped short as she stepped off the curb. She spun around. No, no. You're, you're not coming with me. You have to go to school now. The words fell on me like ice dropping to the floor. There was no way to take them back. I, I shook my head. She shook hers. Aunt Dot then bent down and said into my face, Now, Chucky, you, you just stay here with Tommy and you be a good boy. I shook my head. A sudden strong arm, a hand, a claw, it grasped me by the left hand and pulled me back to the sidewalk, and there in my face was a fiercely smiling, wavy-haired woman whose breath, when she spoke, burned my eyes and sucked up into my nostrils like Walt's turpentine. Now, you don't want to be any trouble, do you? Her grip tightened around my left hand. Her leering, horsey grin looked entirely too hungry for my future. Nodding my right hand, I pulled hard against her hold. She drew me in like some giant land crab locked on its prey, and that's when I punched her in the mouth. She lost her grip, clutched her face, but it was too late. Her top row of dentures struck the sidewalk and immediately snapped off a single canine fang. The movement of the bodies, young and old, came to a standstill. It seemed to me that the whole of life slowed down in this moment. 
Wavy-haired, horsey grin, she gathered up her choppers with one hand while keeping her other hand tightly wrapped over the gaping mouth, which was now making sloppy, inaudible sounds. I backed away from her, and then, seeing my mother had made some distance, I threw my arms around the fire plug and sent a sudden wail into the sky overhead, and this ended with a loss of breath, and as I gulped for air, a hand, my own size, took hold of my forearm. I looked into the eyes of Cindy Maloney, welcome warm brown eyes with just a faint touch of freckles between them. Her voice, when she spoke, was even, gentle, and at the same time strong. Let's go, she said, and I released my grip on the plug and followed. How did you skip over that one? (laughs) That's a major character introduction right there. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, you know, everybody remembers the first day of school, right? I mean, and Scott, you've gone through it a million times because you're a teacher. A million times. Sure, sure. So you've seen it and and with your own son. And and I think about my kids as soon as he started to tell this one. Jimmy was, he was just ready for it. I don't know why. he was a bright little guy, and, and he was just psyched, so excited about going to school. Wow, wow. That's, that's a very different reaction. Yeah, he was like, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. You know, we got the right. picture and the little videos and things like that. Richie was excited and always just basically vibrating with excitement and smiles and everything, but he was, he was scared. Yeah. And, so, and I could tell because he was always within three inches of his brother, on that first day that he got on the bus, you know, always uh. standing right next to him, but excited. And Emily was, uh, she was ready too. She was, uh, but you know, as each one left, it breaks your heart oh, because it's absolutely. a turning point. Probably worse for my wife because at least I could go to work, you know, right. and that kind of a thing. And she was home with the kids for the first five years before she started teaching. Uh, but Emily, uh, when she left, that just ripped me to shreds. Oh my God. Oh man. I was like, Oh my little girl. Well, you know, girl. you know, oh I, I think I think it would have been easier for me a little bit if somebody had told me what was going on. Yeah. They never said a word. I th- I thought my sisters had jobs. You know, everybody just went out and I would stay with either my mom or my grandparents or whoever. They never told me. And the first indication was this shirt that she put me in. What is this shirt? And and why do you need to check the collar, you know, and and then there was this place, and it was horrible. <laughs> i got to tell you, when I was reading it just now, I've never told this story before. And I've never, well, I put it in a book, but I never told it as a story to tell. I, um, I was having trouble with it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it really does. It, it goes back to this feeling of desertion. Sure. You know? Right. Because the world just goes this way all of a sudden. Right. It's so f- interesting for, to hear both of your perspectives, because this is... This is my workplace that we're talking about. And I have a completely different idea of what it is to start your journey in public school. Mostly it's that you f- the first job of the teacher is to get the parents to leave. Yeah, There's right. going to be tears. There's going to be all kinds of reactions. Most kids are fine with it, but there's always going to be th- two or three criers. Right. And it's only going to keep going if the parents stick around. Yeah. And sometimes they even, like, come around the back of the building and look through the window, and you have to, like, close the blinds (laughs) so that you can actually move forward. And when the first 
class, and now I'm as the music teacher, I see them once a week. So I could get them not on the first day, but maybe the third day of that first week. And things will start to improve, but because I'm a new face, many times I'll get that initial reaction, even though it's a few days into sure. the routine. Yeah. Especially as a guy, sure, sure, sure. I'm one of the only guys in an elementary school, so it's and I have a beard. So there are a lot of things. If you don't have uh, a dad who has a beard, that can also be very scary. Uh-huh. Yeah. So when they come to me, the first thing I do is I start singing. I don't say anything. I'm like, hi, hi, sit down. We're gonna have a great time. I start playing piano and I start singing. Some of the kids may start to cry, and I, it's like working a room. Yeah. In a nightclub. But they're <laughs> five-year-olds. You got to make sure that you have enough up-tempo songs. Oh, yeah. Little kids put you to the test. That's Absolutely. A, that's yeah. a tough room. It's that's a, a tough, tough room because they do not care of all your accomplishments. They are just there. And talk about being in that moment. Oh, what, what have you done for me lately? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And if you do t- even something like, um, like I wouldn't do a song like America the Beautiful for probably the first day. Like, I feel them out. After maybe 20 minutes, I might try it and see how it goes. But if you give them enough space to think about their emotions, they become overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So you have to be very funny, and you have to keep moving. Mm -hmm. And they can be crying, whatever. That's okay. You you just sing over them and keep moving. Everybody stand up. Let's do this song. And there are all of these tools in your toolbox. And the classroom teacher, of course, has so many different ones as well to keep going and you you have to set up a routine and stick to the routine. Yeah. And even now in uh, January, we, well, in December we had our winter break. We come back in January and everything is fine. The second week we're back, all of a sudden the, some, it's the kindergarten that can be like, it's their first day. Okay. Because we've broken that routine even months into the, the school year. Mm-hmm. Sure. If you have a week off and mm-hmm. you're home and you're back to what your whole life was before right, you right. went, it's a huge adjustment to sure. try to impose on on someone. You, you know, for Luke, when he went to a hippie school, you know, hmm. uh, not a public school, but a hippie school, more or less, and uh, and I stayed there. I mean, I, I really was. I was really that parent that just stays there. But that's because I found things to do there because I was teaching other hours. Whatever hours I wasn't teaching at college, I would stay there and do projects with, you know, because you could do that in a school like that. And I and I hung out with the teachers, and, and we did stuff together, and we'd do little field trips together. So I came and went. I wove in and out. I wasn't there every day, but I wove in and out a lot. So I think for him, there really wasn't a huge dramatic transition. And uh, so he never really seemed to experience that. And, uh, but what I did notice is when he went from first grade to second grade, uh, he had become so accustomed to the teacher in first grade that he was afraid he was never going to see her again. Uh-huh. And uh, and it was just one, it was in a, like a big house. It was one floor difference. And he just needed to be reminded that, you know, she she's in this house too and she'll come around and so forth. And he made the transition. And part of that was the first grade teacher was phenomenal. She was just so good. And, uh, and that makes it harder for the second grade teacher mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's a tough act to follow. But that's so interesting, though, Scott, to hear your, 
your take on the beginning of school, especially for kindergartners and everything. Yeah. You never, I never Get thought of, of it. From the well, because you've done it once or two or three times. Yeah. I've done it 23 times. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> With three, cla- well, three or four classes every year. Oh, so, yeah. Man. Yeah. That's a whole different, yeah, and, and across different grade levels. And, and every like grade is a different variation, yeah. yes. Yeah, because, you know, once. Once you get up to about third or fourth grade, it's like, you know, going to go out and have a little milk with the boys, you yeah, know, yeah, no yeah, big yeah, deal. Yeah. I, got, I got this. Don't worry. Yep. And I was the oldest guy in my family, so I, I would look after the little ones as they came along because I went to school. Well, Mary went to school first. She was one sure. year ahead of me, and then I followed her. You kind of looked out for your brothers and sisters. You had a job to do. Right. So each year you couldn't. You got to be the brave guy, you know that kind of thing, because you're you're the oldest. You had, a, you had a very, you had a really responsible role in that whole family. High yeah, I had to you do did. it. I had to do it. Yeah, you were the you were the fill in dad a lot of times. I remember yeah, that because dad was always working. You know, yeah, from early in the morning to late at night, seven days a week. It was. I, I remember once. This is some years later from the time we've been discussing, but I remember Albert taking a spill, and you know, I'm older, and I, I offered to help him. And he said, no, no, i got to go to Joey. And that was that was the, the parental guardian role, the custodian that, that yeah. you had become associated with and identified with, yeah. In a real sense, I guess, for a lot of different reasons in, in my family. Maggie had the toughest time when she started. She... She was the one who went up against the window, sobbing and crying, and you know. Wow, wow, and my wow. mother talked about it. Maggie. Oh, she had such a tough time, and then she adjusted like within three days. And Maggie's of my sister's kind of the formidable one, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is. And and uh, but boy, she had a really rough time in kindergarten, just first starting. And it's a big thing, right? It it's is a, a very a huge big thing. thing. Yeah, yep. the first big thing. Yeah, right. You know, oh. for both the kids yeah. and for the parents. Yeah. Karen was able to go, we were in North Carolina for their first years of school. Down there, a parent could come to school and walk in, read to the kids, mm-hmm. help out, do this, do like that. Like the hippie school that Luke went to. Yeah, yeah. So, so Karen did that very often. Up here, not the same. Mm-hmm. I really don't want the parents to be, and understandably so, but uh, different. Anyway. Was, anyway, first yeah. day. That was first day. The beginning of academia. <laughs> so why do you think that Tessie didn't really brief you on that, though? I'm, it's, do you think it was that she was... I think she had some denial going on there because the girls told me that they got briefed over the years. Uh, I, I was the last kid. And I think, you know, and also she had a job, and that's why she talks about her job. She had an important job. I don't know how important it was. I mean, for her, it was very important. Sure. But... Uh, sure. Uh, I don't know how they felt about it at the other end. She was on the, on the lines at Letterly, you know, assembly lines. Yeah. But she was proud of her own job, her own work. She was no longer housewife Tessie. She was working mother Tessie. And I remember distinctly when she put me into that checkered shirt, she was telling me where she bought it. Yeah. And that's because she bought it with her money, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And uh, and in time, Tessie really made a regular salary greater than Walt's. Yeah. As independent contractors, money comes and goes. But when you have a regular salary, a regular gig, and, and benefits, you know, that she had that she could bring to the family. Well, and in her time, too, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it was breakthrough. Yeah. She, she was a pioneer. Yep. You know? She went from the assembly line eventually into secretarial work and then eventually became the head of the secretarial work in the maintenance division of Letterly. She was very much a, a career woman as far as that goes. And, of course, we're at the other end. So we're, we're seeing mom, 
but she had this she had this sort of dual existence thing, and in a way she flaunted it. The like in the story where the way she's Why talking not? to she's talking yeah. to Dot, you know, and she's letting Dot know, well, I've I've got to get to work, you know, and yeah. then the commentary about the shopping, you know, and, and sure. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, she she did kind of because I think Tessie also, and this is a a side of Tessie I haven't really explored much in these stories, but she also felt like. Um, Kind of uh, an outsider, even though she lived in Hilburn all her life, you know, with with the Steads, she wasn't, you know, she was married in, and she wasn't part of the core group. And the the other women had jobs too. I mean, it's not like they didn't all get jobs, but uh, there was that distinction. And sometimes I think she kept that distinction going as much as they did. Yeah, well, I guess she was proud of it, and and mm-hmm. why shouldn't she be? She was, like I say, one of the pioneers. Back in the 50s, you know, you can see it in the TV commercials. If yeah. you ever, you know, check them on YouTube or, or you look in the magazines, it's, it's, it's hilarious. I mean, it's absurd the way they used to talk about, you know, the little woman. And she's always mm-hmm. in a little dress and all this other nonsense, you know, that it was, I guess, the way we were back then. Uh, I was too young to really realize it. But now when you look back at it, I mean, you ever see like the old commercials and everything and... You know, and mom loves to cook breakfast for the kids every morning. <laughs> and what's childish, you know. not childish, but absurd about that is it minimizes, it belittles the actual significance of, of a mother and housewife. Of what she was doing, you know, sure. Th- those are, I mean, that's a job. So the, the mom housewife who gets a job outside the home is really working then two jobs. Yeah. And yeah. if you think about the lack of appliances and other things to make that work as easy as it might be today, which it's not even today, mm-hmm. but... Was an impossible job. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's they. They're the glue that holds it all together. Always were, always will be. I think of my mom. The kind of backflips she she did to try to keep everything going in our big family. It's just uh, amazing to me. The shopping center, the Bergen Mall. When you said that, of course, I was yeah. kind of raised there. Yeah, yeah. And you know, me and my friend Vinny Sullivan and Richie Heron would go down and to to us it was an amusement park. Yeah. <laughs> they had stairs that moved, you know. <laughs> and we rode those suckers until they threw us out of the store, yeah, you know. Yeah. And then they had these little rooms you would get into and press a button and all of a sudden it, the doors would open and you'd be in a different place and elevators were totally new to me back then. Yeah. And, and there was just all manner of stores and places you could go, and there were even little, little amusement areas where you could ride on things and things like that. There are scholars that believe the Bergen Mall was the first official mall in America could because have been. it was a cluster of stores, and they kept growing, and eventually they just started bringing them, you know, uh, uniting them, bringing them together, and creating corridors. And they argue yeah. that that was the formation of of mauling of America. It was it was uh, Stearns and uh, Newberries and. Fox's Diner and mm-hmm. everything all together right there. And then all of a sudden there was the Garden State Plaza down the road a piece. Yep, yep. And then Paramus Mall. And, and now... They're all going down. All the box stores are going down. Everybody's yeah. buying online. You know, it's funny. You, you say it was an amusement park to you. I distinctly remember, because Tessie got very interested in going to Paramus to shop then, and she'd come down to visit Serena Land. And I distinctly remember being afraid to go into the Bergen Mall the first time. Like, yeah. I stood by the car, and Tessie had to coax me in. It was too big? It was too big, and I was afraid, and there were too many people. And she kept saying, well, come on, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get an ice cream soda, you know, somewhere in that array of stuff, there's an ice cream soda. 
and I had to say to her, I remember saying, we're not going to go in too deep, are we? Mm. And I remember being <laughs> yeah. afraid of it. <laughs> it was massive. But these things were massive. And it was changing the face of America. Oh, yeah. It was. No question. Yeah. Oh, my, my father, uh, his first major job for most of his life was window displays for Army and Navy stores. Really? How do you like wow. that? And he would take me when I was a little older to to quote unquote help him, you know, but basically to, he'd go in the window, everything would be taken out. He would wash the window from the inside. It's the two times a year that would happen. Yeah. He would have wallpaper to put up everywhere. He'd have border to go around the window. He put everything on different pedestals. Pedestals, like, yeah. yeah. And he could look at one from across the room and say, that's an eight inch, that's a six inch, because he would just know wow. from looking at that. Yeah. And then he put everything on to speed, iron every single piece of clothing that would go in that window. And then on a cardstock, he would take a paintbrush and, you, and with calligraphy, he would paint what the item is and how much it costs. Isn't every like single Think about that. item. It's like a craft. It's it like was an artistic a, he was, craft. He was an apprentice yeah. wow. to do that. Wow. Yeah. And That's we always great. grew up hating malls because he said, this is the death of my industry. Oh, yeah. Because suddenly oh, yeah. there's no window. Sure. Right? And the people who were, they wouldn't pay someone, a specialist to come in to do a display. The, the you know, manager would come in and throw something on a mannequin and, you know, that's it. And we would walk around, say, Bambergers or something like that. And and my dad be look at that thing. That's awful. Look what they just threw that thing up there. It's not even iron. Look at that. It's disgusting. So utilitarian. Right. Ah. right. Yeah. What happens when you give it over to the masses? Exactly. Exactly. The whole artistry is forgotten. Wow. <laughs> and now there's absolutely nothing except online, you know. The, yeah, yeah. As the a windows photograph. are online yeah, right. Now, right? Yeah, that's it. Well, Interesting. All right. Well, what are we going to talk about next week, Chuck? Uh, next week, we're going to continue our little journey through kindergarten with a story called Corner Duty. Corner Duty. Oh. I, meant right. to, I meant to say Corner Duty, but yeah. it, it came out as duty, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, well, in kindergarten, you never know. It's yeah. right. <laughs> and with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us, and we'll see you next week. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their $20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845 764 
845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8th Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story. <laughs>